Ezra chapter 3, and beginning in verse number 1. The word of God reads this. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Yeshua, the son of Josedek, and the brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the time, Lord, where we open your precious word, and it is a precious word. It's an authoritative word. It's an inspired word. It's your word. And Lord, I pray you would speak to us, each and every one of us, this morning. Lord, we all come with our burdens and our trials and our troubles, our worries and our woes. But Lord, let us lay them to one side as we focus upon you this morning. Lord, we love to sing praises and Lord, that's when we indeed speak to you. But when your word is opened, Lord, that's when you speak to us. So Lord, I pray you would use me this morning. You would help me to be all that I need to be in you. I pray, Lord, that your word would be clear and concise. That we would be challenged. That we would be uplifted. That we would be given guidance for these difficult days. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure some of you will know of Rodney King, if you remember that name at all. Um, maybe not, but as I unpack it a little, you may, you may remember. Rodney King was um, involved in the police brutality case in Los Angeles, 1991. If you remember, um, four officers chased him down and, and they, they beat him with uh, their rat battens or, and um, they were taken to trial and then they were acquitted in trial and they, their acquittal led to the riots in Los Angeles in, in 1992 off the back of that. And there was, uh, you know, uh, several, over 50 deaths, actually, thousands injured as a part of those riots. And I don't know if you, if you remember this, but King was made famous through that, um, not only because he was the one that was involved in it, but during those riots, he came out and, and basically made this plea and said uh, to the crowds, people, can we just all get along? And that was his cry. And when we think about church today, and we think about the ecumenical movement within church, and, and, and that means basically all churches come together in unity, that's the same cry. Christians, can we not all get along? Or Christendom, can we not all uh, get along? And, and um, that word ecumenicalism comes from the Greek word economia. Uh, which really means uh, whole inhabited earth. And, and the principle is that, you know, if, if you name the name of Jesus, uh, if you call yourself a Christian, because naming the name of Jesus and having the name of Jesus are two different things. But for this concept, we're going to talk about Christendom as a whole. And you know, if you're just a, a Christian and under that big banner of Christendom, really we should all get along and, and we should all live together as one happy, happy family and, and just be about the Lord's business. And, and that's the cry of the ecumenical movement today. So we have the World Council of Churches that are at the forefront of this movement. And their, their logo, if you go and look at it, you'll see it has this word for uh, ecumenical on it, this uh, econ economia. 
give or take, my, my, my Greek's not the best, but give or take, that's what, it, that's what it's pronounced as, and it means whole inhabited earth, and it was historically used in the New Testament to, to refer to the entire Roman Empire, uh, which was known as the inhabited earth, really. Um, and, and they use that word, they have that word in, on, on their logo, and that's what they're about, you know, everybody together. This is, this is uh, how they describe themselves, this is a quotation from their website, they describe themselves as a fellowship of churches which confess the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Saviour according to the scriptures and therefore seek to fulfil together their common calling to the glory of the one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And, and on a basic level, there's nothing wrong with that statement. In fact, I would say a hearty amen to that statement as I understand it biblically. So the basic premise of a call to unity it is, is, it seems like a fair one. It seems like a reasonable one. And that's often the argument that's used by those that will say, you know, you're a church, you're a Christian, that church down the road, they're a Christian. Um, you know, you should really be all uh, uh, together, working together for the cause of Christ. And uh, like I said, you know, to the outside world, that seems like a reasonable thing. On face value, just reading it as it is, that seems like a reasonable thing. I mean, doesn't God want his people to be unified? Of course he does. Of course he does. There's no doubt in that. Uh, he wants his people, because they're his people, to be unified, to be serving together as the local church, the body of Christ. That's scriptural. There's no problem about that. But we have to add this little caveat on that is excluded from all the ecumenical movements today, that unity is desired by God. It is a, 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 is a blessing to God when God's people are unified. But the caveat we have to put on the bottom is unity has to be done God's way. That's the caveat. It has to be done God's way. Unity on God's terms, not ours. That's what God demands. And as we get into Ezra chapter number 3, we're going to see unity on display from the returning remnant, those that are going back to build the temple at Jerusalem. And we're going to see this unity on display, but we have to explore this unity as is given in the Old Testament. We have to interpret that unity, and then we can make application for the church today and the unity that we are to have as the body of Christ. Because I believe there is application to be drawn out of this. There's clear teaching in the unity we're going to see in the returning remnant as to the unity we should have as the church today. So here's the first thing I want you to notice as we look at uh, these people uh, as they head together to build a temple. And as we examine their unity, I want you to see that they were unified in direction. Look at verse 1. It says, And when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? It's important because, as many of you well know, when you look into Israel's history prior to this, it's a very checkered history. I mean, we have David, we have Solomon, and we have a united kingdom, if you could call it that. And then there's a division, isn't there? There's a split. We call that the divided kingdom. 
And, and when that happens, you know, nothing, nothing good comes of it. You know, there's, there's the two and ten split as they go in. The northern king of Israel, made up of ten tribes. Uh, Jeroboam served as its first king. He ruled for 22 years. His reign brought uh, immediate moral and religious corruption. Counterfeit religion. And Jeroboam's legacy long outlived him. Long outlived him. Turn to 1 Kings chapter number 15 and verse 34. Here we read about Basha. But notice with me what it says of those that came after Jeroboam. 1 Kings 15 verse 34. Here's one of these kings that came after and here's what's said of him. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. That's 1 Kings 15 verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of Jeroboam. And one of the first things that Jeroboam did when he came was he set up this new worship system, this counterfeit worship system. Um, Turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 if you're ready in 1 Kings. One Kings chapter twelve, verse twenty-six. Yeah, I'm in two Kings. That's one Kings chapter twelve and verse thirty-six. No, twenty-six. Sorry, twenty-six. Sorry, just testing. One Kings chapter twelve, verse twenty-six. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. And if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So here's the problem in Jeroboam's mind, is that the people are still tied to Jerusalem because it's a place of worship. And if they're tied to Jerusalem, they're going to go back to Jerusalem. Then they're going to be influenced. And then they're going to uh, turn and actually leave him. So as, 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 as his mind thinks about how he's politically and religiously going to lead this kingdom, this northern kingdom, he knows that something has to be done about Jerusalem. Verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And notice what Jeroboam says. It's too much for you to make that distance. It's not convenient for you. I mean, that's a hard journey. And you're, you know, you're, you're out there and you're working hard and, 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 and you've got to make a little bit of sacrifice. And, you know, I want to make it easy for you. I want to make it convenient for you. This is what I was talking about this morning. You know, it's a good facility to have, which we're going to have in that room, to be able to do these things on Zoom. But it's not a replacement for gathering as God's people. Just because it's convenient. But we like convenience, don't we? Oh, we like convenience. We love convenience. And Jeroboam says to the people, no, it's too much for you. Here's another alternative. Here's another system. Verse 29. And he set the one in Bethel. He put the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people went up to worship before the one even until Dan. And he made a house of high places. 
and he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month and the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. He offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he praised in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made, and he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So see what Jeroboam has done. He's made it convenient. Changed the place of worship. He's changed the way of worship. No, it's not the Levites. Anybody can become a priest. Anybody can go come up and minister the word of God and the sacraments of God and the feasts and the rituals and the religion. Anybody can do it now. And that's appealing. It's appealing. It's appealing to those that have always fancied that. You don't have to go too far to make an application today, do you? I really don't. But Jeroboam has brought about this system of worship that's appealing, it's, uh, it's uh, convenient, it's inclusive, anybody can get involved. He's made up his own feasts. Now if you look in Leviticus, you'll see the feasts are given by God. They're his feasts, his appointed times. And now Jeroboam's come along and making his own appointed times. He's making his own priesthood. He's making his own place of worship. But the instructions given by God in Leviticus were clear of how God was to be worshipped. That's what Leviticus is about. It's a parallel book with Exodus. Exodus, the people come out of Egypt. Leviticus, God lays down how they're to worship God because they've been in Egypt for all those years and they've seen false worship, pagan worship, and how the people of Egypt had their ritual, had their religion, had their way of worshiping God. And the people come out and they've lost the way of worship and God lays it down clearly. The way of worship for his people is specific and it is clear and it is God ordained and God appointed and God laid it down in Leviticus for the people. Then Jeroboam comes along and he brings a false type of worship. There's similar things but it's not God's way. It isn't his way. And if it's not God's way, it isn't worship. It isn't worship. I don't care what you call it. It may be convenient. It may be inclusive. It may be appealing. But it's not worship. Because worship begins when the human heart gives over to the will and purposes of God. When we realize that we are nothing and we know nothing unless God has revealed it to us through his word. How do we worship God the way God tells us to? Simple. Simple. You know, in this church, has a strong heritage, and I'm thankful for that, that we believe the word of God. Verbal plenary inspiration. That every word is God breathed. It is literally the, the word of God. That's what that word means. Inspiration. Theonoustos in the Greek. God breathed. When you speak. When I'm up here uh, preaching from God's word. It is just breath coming through my vocal cords. And being formed uh, into words. Literally I'm breathing upon you. The word of God is God breathed. 
authoritative. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. You don't need any fancy ideas. God didn't need Jeroboam's input into how he was to be worshipped. Maybe the people appreciated it because they wanted something that was more convenient, that suited their humanistic worldview a little bit better. God didn't want that. If that's what God wanted, that's what he would have said in Leviticus to those people, his covenant people, all those years ago in Mount Sinai when he took them out of Egypt. So for hundreds of years at this point, when we get to Ezra, the people have been divided. The worship has been divided. And idolatry has come into the land. The, 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 the false system of the priesthood is in the northern kingdom. They're, they have the high place in Dan. There's sacrifices and worship going on there that should never be going on there. And on and on it goes. Until the captivity. Until they're taken into Babylon. And because of that hardship, this idolatry is smashed out of the people. And they get to the place now where they're heading to Jerusalem. That's their direction. No longer Dan. No longer the high places. But they're unified in their direction to Jerusalem. God's holy mind. They're unified in direction. And that's important for the church today. We have to be unified in direction. What direction is that? It's not the Holy Mind. It's the Holy Book. It's the Holy Book. It's where unity begins. So they were unified in their direction. Then secondly, they were unified in their desire. Look at uh, the beginning of verse number 2. It says, Then stood up Yeshua, the son of Josedek, the brethren his priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel. They builded the altar of the God of Israel. That was their desire. Now, why is that important? Because that always, hadn't always been the case, as we've talked about in Israel's history. It's not that they weren't building altars. Because they did. Throughout their history, they, they built altars. Through the divided kingdom, they built altars. They built altars in the northern kingdom. They built altars in the southern kingdom. Some of them altars were to worship the false gods. Turn to Jeremiah chapter number 32. See this there. Some of these altars were to worship false gods, pagan gods. Jeremiah 32 verse 35. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valleys of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And you know, you can have a, a look throughout the history of Israel, and you'll see that up until the point where we're dealing with in Israel, you'll see that they, many altars were built to worship false gods. This is in Judah specifically that Jeremiah is talking about. The northern kingdom was full of them. High places, groves. We've been, the guys that are doing the reading plan have been looking through, and I think you've touched on Hezekiah recently. And, you know, Hezekiah, you know, it, by a scripture's own word, it says that he, is, he was the greatest king of Judah that there ever was. The key to his success when you read Hezekiah is the first thing he done was he cut down the high places. 
and the groves and the false altars to the pagan gods. So, you know, that's essential, essential. We have to cut down idolatry. But Israel was marked with it. But they also built altars to worship Jehovah. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem bad. And we kind of touched on this a little bit in the first place. But again, I must stress that an altar to God, if it's not in his place, done his way, is not an altar of worship. It's an altar of rebellion and disobedience. Oh, but, but we're worshipping God there. No, you're not. Because you're not obeying his basic commands for worship. So how can you be worshipping him by saying, I know better than you? You can't. So when the people built altars across the land to worship Jehovah, they were near as bad as the altars across the land to worship the false gods. Because God, the God of Israel, Jehovah, had commanded worship to take place his way in his place. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Let's let the Lord speak for himself. And where did he want the people to worship? Let's read. Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. So that's a pretty conclusive statement to God's chosen people. I'm going to lay down these statutes, these judgments. You shall observe to do them in the land all the days that you live upon the earth. Verse 2. You shall utterly destroy all the places where in the nations which you shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains, upon the hills, under every green tree. You've got to clear out all that idolatry, those high places, those groves. And you shall overthrow their altars, break their pillars, burn their groves with fire, hew down the graven images of their God, destroy the names of them out of that place. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. So don't do any of that type of worship unto Jehovah. Verse 5, but unto the place which the Lord God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither shall come. Verse 11, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, that only shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offering of the hand, all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. Verse 14. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there shall offer thy burnt offerings, and there shall do all that I command thee. Verse 18. But thou must eat them before the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy maidservant uh, and thy manservant and thy maidservant, the Levite that is within thy gates, thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God in all thou puttest thine hands unto. Verse 21. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name, there be too far from thee, then they shall kill the herd of thy flock which the Lord has given thee, I have commanded thee, thou shalt eat thy gates wherever thy soul lusteth after. Verse 26. Only thy holy things which thou hast and thy vows shall I take and go unto the place which the Lord shall choose. 
So you see that, don't you? Over and over again. The Lord says, I want you to worship. I want you to go to a place that I choose and the place where I put my name. Where is that place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There is no other place on this earth where the Lord has put his name and chosen as the place where his worship for his Old Testament covenant people was to be. There was no other place. It was Jerusalem and none other. But the people had taken what God had commanded and they had decided to add to it and change it and chop it up a little so that altars began to spring up all over Israel to worship Jehovah God. But Jehovah was clear. His name was upon Jerusalem. His name was upon Mount Moriah. And that was where the worship was to take place. And although they took worship to other places and although you may look at it and say well well, they were sincere and weren't they good trying to worship God where they could but that's not what God had said and the honorable desire doesn't get away from the fact that that's not what God had asked for worship has to be God's way And as we get to Ezra chapter number 3, the people have come out of the exile. They have been thoroughly chastised. Because that's what the exile was. They now come back to build the temple, to go to the place where God's name rests. They're unified in their direction. They're unified in their desire to build the altar, but not just any altar, the altar of God as commanded. And they head towards there. And the third and final point that I want to make to you this morning, and this is probably the most important point. Yes, we've got to be unified in direction. Yes, we've got to be unified in desire. We want to do things God's way. But most importantly, and hear me now, church, and hear me loud, most importantly, we have to be unified in doctrine. We have to be unified in doctrine. Look at the end of verse 2 of Ezra 3. Yes, they're unified in direction to Jerusalem. Yes, they're unified in desire to build the temple of God. But they're unified in doctrine with this little phrase at the end as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God see doctrine is key to it all it's key to it all and for these people they were getting back to the word of God that's what had stirred them that's what had brought them back to the place that they were thinking about Jerusalem and Jerusalem alone Because they were able to read from the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? It's the first five books of the Bible. Where's Deuteronomy chapter 12 found? In the law of Moses. So they read what we've read. How amazing is that? They're getting back to what God has. They're getting back to the doctrine. God's teaching. That's what doctrine is. Not an academic pursuit. Doctrine is God's 
revealed word applied in our lives. That's doctrine. It's doctrine. And it's key to it all. We get to the early church and it's still key. You know, the early church, that's part of the church age. I mean, we've dealt with that in Sunday evenings. But doctrine hasn't disappeared like it's some Old Testament concept. No, no. Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And in breaking of bread and of prayers. Doctrine comes first. It comes first. The fellowship is tied in with it. But doctrine is the core of everything else that comes out. And the early church knew that. But the, as we talk about this unity and doctrine, those that are, are of the ecumenical mindset, those that we talked about at the start of this, will come and they will say, well, listen, 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 listen. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let, let's, let's think about this. That Surely God's people are all one and, and that will override uh, little doctrinal differences that we have. And, and they'll bring you to John 17. Christ's high priestly prayer. And they'll bring you to verses 20 and 21. Let's turn there. Let's read this together. Because this is what will be said. This is the go-to for the ecumenical movement. They'll say that commonality overrides the differences. And they'll say this is what Jesus prayed for. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe in me through their word. Now I love that as a little side note because Christ is talking about us there. He's talking about us. Christ on this earth, as he prays this, is talking about me and you. His body, the church. Verse 21, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art of me, and I in thee. They that also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the ecumenicalist will say, the one that wants us to all get along, will come along and say, see, that's what Jesus prayed for. So let's put doctrine to a side, and let's just let commonality override that, and fulfill what Christ uh, said for us all those years ago. Do you not want to do what Christ has asked you to do? And that'll be the challenge. And then they'll try and paint people like me in their corner and say, I'm a fundamentalist, I'm a bigot, I'm a Bible basher, and I, I hate unity, I'm divisive, I'm a separatist. And say, you're just going against what Jesus paid for my response to that is simply, let's look at the context here and go back a couple of verses to verse 17, which is key. Before Jesus ever says this word of unity in desire and in direction, he brings us to unity in doctrine. Verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Separate them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So there needs to be a separation, a sanctification from us and all others based upon truth. And what truth is that? It's the truth of the word of God. That's doctrine. That's doctrine. Charles Spurgeon says this. I don't quote Spurgeon that often, but this is what he says. Is this to remain divided as sinful? Did our Lord not pray that they may be one, even as we are one? A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. 
What they are saying is, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer and, and John 17, 17 must be read and John 17 must be read in its full context. Sanctify them through their truth, thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And Spurgeon is bang on there. Truth is the deciding factor in unity. And it's not our subjective truth, it's absolute truth. It's a truth that's found in the word of God, his holy and fallible word. And that is the hallmark of how we are to be unified. We're to be unified in doctrine. Now let me say, and I've got to be honest, we set the dividing lines a little bit too tight sometimes. But in the fundamentals of the faith, the basic core tenets of the revealed word that is the foundation for any unity we're to have with anybody else that comes along and names the name of Christ. We cannot have fellowship with those that preach another Christ, another gospel. It should be anathema to us. We have to worship God's way. And truth is important in that. Jesus, when he's dealing with the, the woman uh, of Samaria in John chapter 4, uh, deals with this concept. Let's turn there. John chapter 4. Verse 19. The Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile, the race had come about after the Assyrian captivity. And how you know, the Assyrians, they used to plant people into different nations and then they would intermarry and that's what kind of happened. And, and uh, the Samaritans are descending from this uh, hybrid race, if you like. There's Jewish uh, blood in there. there there's uh, Gentile in there. And there's, uh, the Samaritans then went and set up their own way of worship. They, they replaced Jerusalem as their holy hill to Mount Gerasim. They took the, the law of Moses and they replaced all the references to Jerusalem with Gerasim. And they'd set up their own worship there. Their separate worship, not the worship as God had commanded in his law. Um, but notice how Jesus deals with this woman. Verse 19, John 4. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, that's what God said. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, uh, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation of the, of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true, the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So here Jesus is revealing. What's he revealing? He's revealing the church age to come. 
And he says, but notice what, what's said. Notice the imperative. So in verse 23, he says, worshippers worship the Father in spirit and truth. But then in verse 24, there's an imperative in there. Must. God is a spirit and they that worship him must. Must. Imperative. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth. Worship has to be God's way. Unity has to be God's way. And the foundation to that is doctrine, folks. Truth of the word of God. And we too, just as Israel at the time of Ezra, we have to be unifying in our doctrine. So the resounding question that was asked, can we all get along? The answer from the ecumenicalist is yes, there's no reason why not. But the answer from the word of God is, no, we can't. Unless, unless we are unified in direction, God's word, in desire, God's purposes, and in doctrine, God's truth. Only then, only then, can we be truly unified as God would have it for us. We're chartered by Scripture, commanded by Scripture, in fact, to separate over doctrine if it differs from what's recorded in the Word of God. Oh, well, that's you know, that, not going to help us. It will help us. It will absolutely help us. Because the Lord will command a blessing where his people hold on to his word above all things. We're not to sacrifice the future and the altar of the immediate. You know, what is gained by uh, compromise? It's, it will fizzle and feel. It will fizzle and feel. Look at, look at um, some of the, the great denominations of this nation that have compromised. Compromised. I don't wish to pick in Methodism, I'm not, but you can see the decline of Methodism. What's happened? Compromise. Let's all get along with everybody and anybody, and, and that'll, that'll fix things. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. True biblical worship is the only thing that will satisfy our total personality. And then when we do that, we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. Uh, William Temple gave this definition of, of worship, and I like this. He says this, For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And, of all, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for all the self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. I love that definition of worship. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It's the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, all of this gathered up in adoration. 
And when we worship God's way, we'll be unified in direction. We'll be unified in desire. And most importantly, we'll be unified in doctrine. And then, only then, can we be gathered as one. Just like those people all those years ago, they were ready to go on to what God had for them because they were gathered as one, as his people, according to his word, serving his purposes. United in direction. United in desire and united in doctrine. Church, as we enter into a new year, may we be all of these things that we might worship God, God's way, and then we will see God move as he's going to move in the lives of these people as they gathered as one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time in your word and We are mindful, Lord, that we so often try to take your ways and alter them and meddle with them. And for some unknown reason, we try and make them better. But how could any of your ways be made better? You're the perfect, infinite, eternal God. There is nothing from you that isn't perfect. It needs none of our human ingenuity. Lord, I do pray for us as a people and as a church for the times where we have fallen for the convenient type of worship. But Lord, as we've read that definition of worship, it's, it's a humbling definition, Lord. Lord, it speak to my heart this morning and I must confess, if that's the definition of worship, Lord, I feel... Lord, I want to be a worshipper like that. I want to be in a place where I submit all my nature to you. I want to be in a place where my conscience is quickened by your holiness. I want to be in a place where my mind is nourished by your truth. I want to be in a place where my imagination is purified from the things of this world by your beauty. Lord, will you help us as your people to be gathered as one as we go about your work. Lord, may that unity be in direction upon your holy word and your purposes. Lord, may that unity be in our desire to be true worshippers. Most importantly, Lord, may our unity be in doctrine. And Lord, we face many pressures and will do as a church and a body to just ease a little in some of our stances doctrinally or we, many will come along and say so much more you could do if you just compromised a little Lord these attacks will come and they will come but Lord help us as a people to be unified in doctrine to be firmly grounded in the word of God to make a commitment that if you said it that settles it Lord, we will not be moved by the things of this world. And Lord, help us to gather as one that your body may be fit for purpose for your kingdom 
for your glory.